All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect expression to us of who you are. And Father, we thank you for the written word, which is described in 1 Corinthians as the mind of Christ, so that we can learn to think as you think, and we can come to understand your creation as you created it, as you designed it, and that we can come to understand as we understand who you are as a righteous and just God, that we as sinners can never do anything to merit that salvation. We can never do anything to make ourselves savable. We can never do anything to uh, please you of our own effort that has eternal value, but that you, in your grace, took upon yourself the responsibility to provide a salvation that would not in any way be dependent upon us, but that would be totally dependent upon the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, and that we would be saved not because of our good deeds or our works or our morality or ethics or anything else, but we would be saved because at the moment of faith in Christ, we would be given his righteousness, credited with his righteousness, which doesn't mean that we would be perfect, but that when you look at us, you have declared us righteous because of what we possess in him. And, Father, we pray that as we study today, today, you will help us to understand that more fully and that we can see its implication in many ways in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. When we get into the topic of salvation, how is a person saved? And by that, I'm using the term in this introduction only to refer to going to heaven when we die. There are approximately three views that are presented. One is that we get into heaven or nirvana or utopia or whatever that future state is by our morality, by our good works, by doing good things for people. The exact opposite of that view is the view of biblical Christianity, the view that is set forth uh, and was recovered by a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther in 1517, which started the Protestant Reformation, and the recovery of the truth that was set forth in Galatians and Romans as he had studied them, that a person is justified before God, is made right before God, is declared righteous before God, not by his own works or his own efforts, but by faith alone in Christ alone. 
the in-between position states something to the effect of that we are saved by faith, yes, but that must be accompanied by certain good works. Now, there's two ways that's expressed. There's the what I call the front door uh, presentation of works, which are those who claim that you have to be you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized, or you have to believe in Jesus and your life will you change certain things. You have to join a certain church. You don't commit certain sins, and that way you know you're saved. Or there's the backdoor presentation, which says that you're saved by faith alone, but if it's genuine saving faith, if it's real faith, then there will be accompanying works that is the validation or vindication of that faith And that's how you know you're saved. You have the right kind of faith. And there are those who teach that there can be a faith in Jesus that isn't saving if it wasn't accompanied by the right kind of works. Now, one of the basic problems of that, of course, the basic problem is it's not biblical. But one of the basic problems with that view is it's attempting to quantify what that fruit is. It makes us fruit inspectors when many times we can't even figure out what we think about a lot of things, much less what we've done that may be of some some value to God. So these are the key issues. Now, when you come to the passage we've been studying in our study of Matthew, and we come to this judgment that is described at the end of Matthew 25 that is referred to as the judgment of the sheep and the goats, This passage is frequently taken out of context. In fact, there are many who say that this is the most difficult passage in the Scripture to interpret. And as I pointed out last time, one commentator identified 32 different interpretations. But fundamentally, the problem there is that they identify this as the uh, as as a as a final judgment, and I pointed out in a couple of lessons back, it's not the great white throne judgment, but they identify that as the final great white throne judgment, and they say that the reason that the sheep are identified as such is because of the way they have treated the, quote, least of these my brethren. We saw that that is a term for Jewish believers that will survive the tribulation period. But the confusion comes when many people say that it is because they fed them when they were destitute, clothed them when they had no clothing, visited them when they were in jail. In other words, the reason the sheep are separated and identified as the sheep is because of their good works. And their good works are emphasized because that shows that they were they had genuine saving faith. Now, that raised a question for us that needs to be addressed, and that is, what is the relationship of faith to works? And so that's why we started last time looking at James chapter 2, and we're back there this morning. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I didn't quite finish going through it last time, but as we started it towards the end of the hour as an illustration to answer this first question, the relationship of justification by works, I was giving a, a flyover, more of a summary of the passage, 
And one of the problems that, that I run into as a pastor who teaches the Word is that often I am accused of being obsessed with detail. Why is he going into so much detail? And, and the reason I go into detail is the reason I'm going to go back over some things and go back into detail is because if I don't, I will get a slew of questions that, where I have to go back in order to answer those questions. If I don't go into detail, I don't get that many questions. But if I go, don't go into detail, I will start, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this other thing? And then I have to say, okay, we're going to have a little bit of a re- redo and review because of the questions that I was asked. I was not planning on doing a detailed study of this passage, but it is an extremely important passage. And as several commentators have point, pointed out, the uh, central interpretive hinge for the passage is in verses 18 and 19, which has some real technical issues in it, and I think that we have to spend a little time talking about that. These are, as I pointed out last time, uh, this is, these are words of an objector to what James is saying, and um, it's, it's important. If you understand that, it helps to understand the entire, entire passage. So what we're going to see here in answering three important questions related to related to uh, Matthew 25 is understanding that there is a um, that there are two different kinds of justification. We have to address the question: What's the relation of faith and works? What are they really believing? And then within that passage, it raises the issue of, it calls them the righteous, the sheep are the righteous. How did they become righteous? And then the penalty is going to be uh, condemnation. The goats are sent to eternal death, and those who are the sheep are sent to eternal life. Is the lake of fire really eternal? Why does God judge people eternally? So those are the three questions. So last time we looked at these questions in the context of Matthew 25, and this morning I'm going to focus on probably the the two underlined, three and four, and that is what's the relationship between faith and works? And how did the sheep become righteous? Did they become righteous by their works, by taking care of the poor, by taking care of the clothing those who were without clothes, taking care of those who were in prison, visiting them, or is that something different? The second question in the list, which is what is the gospel, I reminded you that there are basically three gospels in the Bible. The first is the Old Testament gospel, a gospel that looked forward to a future provision of a Savior and salvation. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system wasn't a means of salvation, but it was a training aid to understand the nature of salvation, that there needed to be a death, a penalty that had to be paid for sin and that this could not be paid for by any human being. It had to be paid for by someone who was perfect, pictured by the lamb who was without spot or blemish. Then there was the second gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. So the first gospel is by faith alone in the Messiah alone, okay, the future promised Messiah. 
But it's future. It's not looking back. It's looking forward. In the gospel of the kingdom, it's still faith alone in the Messiah alone, but there's something that's new in the concept of Messiah, and that is that he's coming, he's present, and he's offering the kingdom. So believing in the gospel of the kingdom was to respond to the message of John the Baptist and Jesus and his disciples at the first part of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand calling uh, the Jews to turn back to God because the king was at hand in the person of the king who was offering the kingdom. Since that kingdom was rejected, the offer was withdrawn, postponed. Jesus was rejected as the Messiah. He's crucified, buried, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father as the Son of Man, waiting to come, to be given his kingdom, to come and establish his kingdom in the future. Then there's the church age gospel, which is believe that Jesus is the Messiah who died on the cross for your sins, and by trusting in him and him alone, you have salvation forever and ever. At the end of the church age, that which ends the church age is the rapture. All dead, those who are dead in Christ, will be uh, resurrected from the grave. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That is followed by a seven-year tribulation, which is the final seven years in God's plan and purposes for the nation Israel to bring them to turn to accept their Messiah. And what we see in Matthew 24:14 is that the gospel that is preached in the tribulation is the gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel of the kingdom includes, entails believing the Messiah has come He's died for our sins, and he's about to return to establish his kingdom. It is a Jewish Messiah who's going to establish a Jewish kingdom that will be centered in Israel with the capital and his throne in Jerusalem. To accept that gospel means that you cannot be anti-Semitic. And so when Jesus says, whoever does these to the least of these, my brethren, he's talking about my brethren in terms of an ethnic sense, those who are Jewish, but the least of these, that term we also saw is one that is describes disciples of Jesus. So the term, the least of these, my brethren, is a term to describe Jewish believers in the tribulation period. So we saw that these verses were crit- critical for understanding the gospel today. Gospel is always on the basis of grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Works are not part of the package. We are not saved by doing good deeds. We are not saved by trying to measure up to the righteous standard of God. There is nothing we can do as constitutionally corrupt sinners that can ever measure up to the absolute perfection of God's standard. If we're going to be perfect, which is what God demands, what his character demands, then we must have someone give us that righteousness. That's the picture of salvation. Jesus gives us his righteousness when we trust in him, and we're saved on the basis of his righteousness, not our righteousness. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not on the basis of works, which we have done on in righteousness. Not on the basis of works, which we have done in righteousness. Works are not the basis for God saying, you are righteous. It is the possession of Christ's righteousness. And in Romans 11.6, 
Paul says, for it, if it is by grace, and it is, it is no longer on the basis of works, which is from works, in, literally, in, uh, in the Greek. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you add anything to it, Paul says it's not grace. That's why in Galatians 1, Paul says, if anyone preaches another gospel, a gospel that is different from my grace-based uh, grace salvation, by grace through faith alone salvation, then let them be accursed. That is a false gospel. Gr- faith plus anything equals nothing, no deal. God is strict. My way, no way. So what's the relationship then between faith and works? And this is the claim by many in the Matthew 25 passage, that the sheep are saved by works. It's a faith. um, They believe that faith without works, that is faith without good deeds, is a false faith. It is a pseudo-faith. It is an inadequate faith. It is not a faith that saves. Therefore, in their view, we are saved by faith plus good works. And it was pointed out to me by several uh, in the congregation who listened to me that at any Roman Catholic funeral, because they believe you're saved ultimately by works, this passage in Matthew 24 is cited, that this is how you're saved. And it's the foundation for, if you read anything that tries to relate the social gospel or social uh, programs, social justice, socialism to Christianity, they always cite this passage and take it out of context. Now, the key passage for asserting this relationship between faith and works is in James 2, 14 to 26. And last time, I spent most of the time on 14 through 17, tried to just hit some high points after that, and got myself in trouble because people asked me technical questions. So just a reminder... Justification in Scripture is faith alone, faith minus works. The, that they're not an inherent part of the gospel, and there is not a necessary connection between works and faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. Then there's the view that faith is, that justification is the result of faith plus works in combination with works. And then there's the third view that it's faith plus works as the necessary result. So if you don't see the works, you weren't saved. And that the danger of that is that, that people then say that the way you know you're saved is the evidence in your life. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the way you know you're saved is you believe the promise of God. And the focus is on the promise of God, not on our response to the promise of God, other than faith alone in Christ alone. So James 2 can be broken down into three sections. The first section is in verses 14 through 17, where James is basically saying that faith, and by faith he means not the action of believing, but what is believed. That is, when you say, I believe X, that if you believe it, it doesn't really do you any good if you don't apply what you believe. So faith is, what he is saying is the doctrine, or faith, or what you believe, is useless if you don't apply it. Then in verses 18 to 19, there's the presence of this objector. That's the verse. It's very difficult. In fact, on one hand, I told you that there's this commentator that said there were at least 32 different positions on Matthew 25, and it's clearly the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret. Until you get to James 2's 
18 and 19. And then you will read in almost every commentary, this is the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret. So when you deal with these kinds of things, you have to take a little more time to understand what's going on here so that uh, people won't be confused. The objector is basically saying, all you need is faith. You don't need any works. He's trying to avoid having to apply Scripture in his life. All that matters is what you live and what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. Uh, just so you say the right things. And then uh, James gives two illustrations, from one from Abraham and one from Ahab in the Old Testament, and concludes by saying that uh, faith without works, that is, saying what you believe without application is useless. It doesn't help you spiritually. doesn't mean you're not saved, because we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about spiritual life. So James begins, quick review, James begins in 2.14 saying, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Now, we know that he's talking to believers because he calls them my brethren. In fact, throughout the epistle, he refers to those he's toward whom he is, to whom he is writing as my brethren or my beloved brethren. He is talking to them as, as believers. He uses this phrase, aphalos, which he'll use again in verse 16, which shows the connection, the internal unity of this whole section. What value is it or what benefit is it, my brethren, if someone claims to believe certain things, and maybe they do, but doesn't have works or application? You see, what has happened in the structure of this epistle is back in verse 19, James says to them, So then, my beloved brethren, indicating they're believers, let every man, this is his command to them, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That's the outline of James. From verse 21 to 226, he's talking about being what it means to be swift to hear. In the first part, he talks about hearing the word and doing it or applying it. It's not Christian service. It's application of what the Word says. If the Word says to pray without ceasing, then you pray, make it a habit pattern in your life. If the Word says give thanks in all things, then you apply it by giving thanks in all things. If the Scripture says love your uh, love one another as I have loved you, then you love one another as Christ has loved you. It's not talking about Christian service. It's talking about applying applying the Word. You're to be swift to hear, so you hear and do, and then he gives an example of where they're not doing, which is they're uh, showing favoritism to the wealthy and ignoring the poor, and then he comes back and he talks about hearing and doing, but now he uses the words faith and works. But faith is, the hearing is, is analogous to hearing and works is the same as application, just using, talking about the same thing with two different words. That goes to 26, and then he says, be slow to speak. Chapter 3 is talking about the sins of the tongue. And then he says, be slow to anger. That's representative of all of the uh, mental attitude sins. And so chapter 4, down through 5, 6, talks about being slow to speak. And then he comes back to his major theme, which is to endure and persevere in the Christian life. Uh, so that ultimately when we as Christians appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we will have rewards and not shame. So he says here, what value is it if you claim to believe certain things, I'm paraphrasing, 
If you claim, if you say you claim to be, or claim to believe certain things, but you don't have application, can that faith save him? See, this word saved is one I pointed out many times where we think that it means getting into heaven when we die. Because that's how we use it in our evangelical idiom. But the Bible uses the term in different ways. James 1.21 tells us that this is a focal point of, of his overall uh, application. He's talking about being swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And he says, therefore, lay aside all... In the old King James, it was superfluity of naughtiness. This is a little bit of an improvement. Uh, Filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, I'm not getting into all the details of that verse, but what he is saying is receive the word into your life. In other words, study the word, learn it, believe it, because that's able to save your soul. But they're already justified, because in the previous verses... He has talked in verse 18, he said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He's saying that they're, they're already justified. They've already been born again. They're regenerate. They have eternal life. But what, so what kind of salvation is this? This is growth, spiritual growth. Salvation is used three ways in the, in the Bible. At salvation, when we, at phase one salvation, when we trust in Jesus, we're declared, we receive his righteousness, we're declared righteous, and we are saved from the eternal penalty of sin. It happens just like that when suddenly you realize Jesus died for you, and you believe him, believe he can, and he alone saves you, and from that point on you have eternal life, you're saved from the penalty of sin, eternal condemnation. But after that, we have to be saved from the power of sin in our life. That is ongoing. We are to work out our salvation, as Paul says in Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. It is living out the implications of being uh, declared righteous, being a new creature in Christ. And so now we are being saved from the power of sin. When we die and we are glorified, we no longer have a sin nature, so we're saved from the presence of sin. So the idea is that these, he's writing to them, they are believers, they have been brought forth by the word of God, they are the first fruits of his creatures, they are my beloved brethren, they are believers. But now they have to learn to apply the word. James 1.22, he says, but become appliers, doers of the word. Apply what you're learning. And not merely hearers or not merely listeners who delude themselves. And then he gives an illustration from what the problem is, that they are ignoring the poor. They're not applying the love of Christ to those who are impoverished. In fact, they're treating them with a lack of respect and care, and they're fawning over those who who are wealthy. He uses the same word at the conclusion of verse 16 that he used in verse 14. He says, he said, what value is that? If all you say to them is go in peace, be warm and be filled, you're not doing anything to help them. You're not applying what you say you believe. So I paraphrased it this way. What spiritual benefit is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have doctrine? I've got doctrinal notebooks. I look at my, I got Chafer systematic theology. I know all this, but they're not applying what they've learned. 
Can that doctrine deliver them from the deadly and destructive consequences of sin in our present life? So, that takes us up to where we stopped last time. And his conclusion in that section is stated in verse 17, where he says, Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I pointed out, for it to be dead, it first had to be alive which means they were saved, but now it's of no value. What it means by being dead is it's non-productive, it's a sterile faith, it's not a living or vital faith that's making any difference in their spiritual life. Now we get to the fun part. Verse is 18 and 19. But, this is the voice of the objector, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now, as I stated in the introduction to this, this is a couple, these are a couple of verses that many will say are the most difficult to interpret in the scripture. They are difficult. There's a lot of details we have to address here. First thing I want to point out is the word someone doesn't appear here for the first time in this passage. James says, but someone, that someone is a an objector, someone who isn't agreeing with him. But he has used this word, it's a pronoun in the in the Greek, tis, and it's used at the very beginning in verse 14 of this section. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says, okay? This is the objector. So he's already raised one question. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? What if someone says this? Okay, and it's stated again in verse 16. It's not clear in your English because he says, and one of you says to them, there's a word someone. So this word someone appears two or three times there. So he's using this as a rhetorical device to talk about what some other people say. Now, the question is, are the words of this someone in verse, verses 18 and 19 found only in the first part of verse 18, the whole of verse 18, or both verses 18 and 19? Now, I'll show you what I mean by that in just a minute. And the second question that should be asked is, who exactly is this someone? What are they arguing for? What's their position? Now, here is a screen, and I had to get all this on there, so it may be a little hard for you on the back row to see it. But this is from four different translations. And the one that most of you use is either going to be the second one or the third one. The second one reflects the New King James Version, the uh, New English Translation or the Net Bible, the English Standard Version, the RSV, Revised Standard Version, even the NRSV or the NIV. The third example there is from the New American Standard Bible. What you're looking at are the lines that are underlined. If you will notice in the first one, this is from Moffat's translation. Moffat was a scholar, wrote several commentaries, had published his own translation of the New Testament. And if you will notice, he has the words of the objector as only the first six words. And someone will object and say, and you claim to have faith. 
Okay, in the second example, which is what you have in New King James, N-E-T-E-S-V, R-S-V, and N-I-V, the words of the objector are a little bit longer. There you have in quotes, you have faith and I have works. And then after that, you would assume that's the voice of James. In the third example, this is the example from the New American Standard translation, New American Standard Bible, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In this translation, it appears that all of verse 18 are the words of the objector. Now, you see why people would be confused. Now, how many people, I'm not, don't show your hands. This is a rhetorical question. How many people think that the quotation marks are from the original Greek? None. There are no punctuation marks in the in Greek. They didn't use punctuation marks. So it is a an interpretation based on numerous factors, and in this case especially theology, to decide where this guy's voice begins and ends. The trouble is that there's clear con- indication in the language as to where this goes. This is seen in the fourth example which I believe is correct, which is William's New Testament translation and also reflected in Young's literal translation. And according to this understanding, the voice of the objector includes both verse 18 and verse 19. So James isn't affirming, James isn't saying verse 19. He's not saying you believe that God is one, you're right, evil spirits also believe this and shudder. He's not saying that. That's in the, still in the voice of the objector. Now, why do I say, in contrast to the Bibles you read, that the quotation marks should go all the way through verse 19? Well, first of all, we see that, that this is a typical rhetorical device that is used in uh, in much of Greek literature, it is called a diatribe, and um, and that this diatribe is often presented where you have uh, words initially introducing the objector, and then there is another statement that is made that indicates um, that the original writer is taking up his cause. For example. In Romans 9.19, okay, this is an example of this diatribe. Paul says, you will say to me then, see, that's the same thing that James does here and says, uh, but someone may say, you will say to me then, and then the voice of the objection, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Now, to counter that, Paul clearly indicates that he's now back Speaking, and he says, but indeed, O man. See, there's this address to the objector. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? So another example in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 35, and 36, similar to what James says, but someone will say, someone will, might object. How are the dead raised? And with what body do they come? Then we hear the voice of Paul, O foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. 
So this diatribe, which was very common in Greek literature, is a sophisticated argument where the writer uses the voice of someone else in a debate-type format to express an objection, and then he answers that objection. It's also seen in uh, Luke 4.23, Romans 11.19, and various examples in Josephus and also in the, in the Septuagint. Another thing that indicates this just structurally is verses 14 through 17 are a unit as indicated by what's called in, in literature an inclusio. You have a statement made at the beginning and a statement at the end, which in artillery terms brackets the target. Okay? So verse 14 raises the question, um, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. In verse 17 it says, faith itself if it does not have works. So the beginning of the section talks about faith without works. The end of the section as a sentence it says, faith by itself without works. So that's, that's a unit of thought. James 2.20, which comes after verse 19, the question is asked, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So the question that's asked in verse 20 focuses on faith without works as being dead. And in verse 26, it says, repeats that phrase, faith without works is dead. So that's an inclusio. So if 14 through 17 is a unit and 20 to 26 is a unit, that means 18 and 19 must be the unit in between. Okay, now that's really important because one of the questions I got last week after the message focused on this very thing. I've, the person said, I've had trouble talking to people, helping them understand this. Uh, how, how do you really understand what's going on here with these demons in verse 19? And you can't really, it's very confusing for a lot of people. And if you don't understand who's talking, then you can't really understand how to interpret that passage. So in verse 18, we have the introduction of this objector. James says, but someone, somebody who doesn't agree with me, may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith from, and notice I put in there, not without. See, this is another little problem. There's a textual variant. Now, what a textual variant means is that we have over 5,000, today maybe over 6,000 by now, uh, original language manuscripts from the 1st through about the 8th or ninth century of the New Testament. Manuscripts, they're very ancient. But sometimes copyists would miscopy, and so you have an error that comes in, and so you have some manuscripts that might have a different reading, and so what happens is you have some manuscripts that use the Greek word chorus for from, this from right here, and it's translated without, but the vast majority of manuscripts, including many ancient manuscripts, don't have chorus here, they have the word uh, ek. So that's the word from. So if it's ek here and ek here, it makes much more sense. Show What the objector is saying is you claim to have faith, and I'm going to claim to have works. Now, if you start with your faith, uh, he says, show me your, your or if you, let me reverse this. He says, you have faith, I have works. 
He says, if you start with your faith, show me from faith your works, and I'll start with works and try to show my faith from the works. What he's arguing is there's not a necessary connection between what a person believes and what they do. Okay? He's saying your idea, James, that faith without works is useless is it doesn't work. It's nonsense because there's no necessary connection between what a person believes and what they do. And then he's going to give an example in verse 19. He says, for example, you believe that God is one. What's, what, what impact does that have on you that you believe that God is one? Well, you worship God. On the other hand, you have demons. They believe the same thing. They believe that God is one, and they shudder. See, just because you have you believe the same thing doesn't mean you're going to have the same application. So see that he's saying there's no connection between application and what you believe. So he's trying to avoid, nullify James' argument. Now, for the sake of argument, there are those who think that verse 19 is in the voice of James, but this is in the voice of the objector. But assuming their position, they will then say, see, this proves that you have to have, that, that real faith has, has some consequent action. Even de- demons believe, but they don't have the right kind of fruit. Let me ask you a question. Pop quiz. Is believing that God is one the gospel? If believing that is believing that God is one, what you have to believe to go to heaven when you die? No, that's not the gospel. See, this isn't talking about a a, a salvation proposition here. It is talking about the fact the demons clearly believe God is one. When Jesus came on the earth and he cast demons out, what did they call him? They called him Lord. They called him God. They knew who he was. But it had nothing to do with self-believing. Just believing that God is one is not going to get you to heaven. So this is not a proposition at all that talks about salvation. The reality is James object or simply saying, like many people today, I just need to study the Bible. If I just know the, know the Bible, that's enough. James is saying that may be great to know the Bible, but if you're not applying it, it's not doing your spiritual life any good. You may still be saved, but you're not growing. That's his whole point. So he goes to the next level of his argument. He says, but are you willing to recognize, O foolish fellow? See, in the diatribe, it starts with an introduction, but someone will say, but when the original speaker is coming back, he makes some comment. Romans one nineteen, uh, Paul says, oh, oh, oh man, how long will you do this? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul did the same thing James does. He calls the objector a fool. So you clearly know when the writer's coming back. So that's why I said, how do you know those quotation marks go all the way through verse, verse 19? Because of the way it's structured. It's, it's basic, the li- basic to the literary structure of this kind of rhetorical device in Greek. So James is saying, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He's not saying uh, that, that 
they're not believers. It's that as believers, you're not applying what you say you believe. And then he gives two examples. The first example comes from Abraham. That's the only one I'm going to talk about. He says, what, James says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, Abraham is the classic example of justification by faith alone. Paul will refer to him in Romans chapter 4. It's the first clear statement of justification by faith alone in the Old Testament in Genesis 15, 16. And so uh, Genesis 15, 16 refers to Abraham's original salvation. But this event, when Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, and by this time, this is in Genesis 22. This is 30 or 40 years, maybe 50 years later. In the interim period, Abraham has grown spiritually. He's come to understand that God is going to fulfill his promise to him. And many times he tried to fulfill that promise himself. That's why we got stuck with Ishmael. And now he understands that God's going to fulfill that promise through Isaac, just as God has said. And even if he kills Isaac, God's going to, the writer of Hebrews says, God's, he realized God would bring him back from the dead. God's going to fulfill his promise. And so Abraham is like, I finally got it. I'm going to, I, I'm believing God for his promise, not for salvation, but that he's going to provide me with an eternal seed and an eternal people. And that's going to be through Isaac and nobody else. So I'm going to do what God says to do. So, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? It's not his justification for salvation. It's his justification of his spiritual growth and maturity. He was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. And then in verse 22, James says, Do you see that the that his faith was working together with his works or his application? And by works, faith was made perfect. Now, that word perfect is really important. It's the word in Greek that means to be mature, not to be flawless, not to be sinless, but to be brought to maturity, to be completed. That's the base meaning of the word uh, teleao. So James is saying by, by his application, his faith in God was matured. That's the subject of the whole epistle is how Believers are to grow by hearing and applying the word and by being slow to speak and slow to anger. And so he says, and scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was in accounted to him as righteousness. That word accounted is from a Greek word meaning an accounting term, meaning to impute or credit someone to his account. James 2.23 is quoting from Genesis 15.6. His conclusion is, you see then that a man is justified by works and not only by faith. Now, what's important there is you'll see that there's a little bit of a difference there uh, between the way I translated that and what you might have have in your Bibles. And that is because of a misreading of a Greek term that's translated only. In the Greek, it is an adverb, manos. Now, just basic, this is why grammar is important. Drive some of you nuts, I know. But this is why it's important. An adverb modifies what kind of word? 
multiple choice. A, a verb. B, a noun. An adverb modifies a verb. So if you're reading this in uh, most translations, it says, uh, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Okay, what kind of word is faith, noun or verb? It's a noun. Nouns are modified by adjectives. So if this is an adverb, it's not there to modify the noun faith. It's modifying a verb that is left out. It's already supplied by the context, but it is applied. Just as a side note, this is called ellipsis. We do it in English all the time. You hear people say, wait for me, I'm going to come with. What are they saying? I'm going to come with you. They've left out the word you. But we understand that. Listen to British English in some of these murder mysteries I know some of you watch. How many times they leave out words because it's understood what the word is. So when when, uh, James says, you see then that a man is justified by works, he's already given us the verb, and then he is saying, and not justified by, And that's where the adverb would come, not justified only by faith. There's two kinds of justification. Same thing Paul says in Romans 4.1. Now this is, in Romans 4.1, Paul says, What then shall we say about Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works. But you notice I got a little superscript there for a one. That's a first-class condition in the Greek. That's a way of expressing a condition that is expected to be true. So he is saying, yes, Abraham was justified by works, but not before God. See, it's a justification before man. It's a vindication of his salvation originally. So this takes us to the fourth question, which is how did the sheep become righteous? This is simple. You go back to Genesis 15, 6. Just walk it through the Old Testament. Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was imputed or counted to him as righteousness. So not what he did, it's what he believed. Justification is by faith alone. Isaiah in the Old Testament says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. He includes himself. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, he appears before the throne of God, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He says, we're all unclean. We're all sinners. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of our righteousness is is like filth. Okay? So how do we become righteous if all of our good deeds, not our bad deeds, but all of our good deeds are garbage? We do it through God. Isaiah 50, verse 8 says, He is near who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. This is talking about justification as seen in, uh, by, by the Messiah, the servant, and seen in Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see the labor of his soul, that is, the suffering servant will see the labor or the work of his soul. And uh, Excuse me, this is God the Father saying, He shall see the labor of his soul, the servant. He, the Father, shall see the labor of his soul, the the Son, the servant, and be satisfied by his knowledge. That is, by the knowledge of the Father, my righteous servant shall justify many. He will make them righteous. 
for he shall bear their iniquities. This is the same point that Paul is making in Romans 4, 3 and following. For what does the Scripture say? Same quote that James uses. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him or imputed to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but debt. In other words, you can't work to get to heaven. That's a debt. That's not going to get you there. It's not grace. But to him who does not work, that is, you just believe in Christ as your Savior, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. So in conclusion, how are we to be declared righteous before the throne of God? How did those sheep, in the separation of the sheep and the goats, they're called the righteous, how did they become righteous? Not by doing good deeds, because all through the Scripture it says that doing good deeds doesn't make you righteous. All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What makes you righteous is that you have believed in Christ as Savior. You have believed the gospel. And the gospel at the, during the tribulation is the gospel of a messianic king who died for his people, who died for their sins, and he will come and bring a Jewish kingdom that will be centered in Israel in Jerusalem. And when that Jewishness of the gospel is understood then it will be impossible for those who believe a Jewish gospel for a Jewish king and a Jewish Messiah to reject aid to Jewish believers during the tribulation period. For us, the issue is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Christ is the word for Messiah. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and by faith alone in Christ alone, by believing that he died for me, he paid my penalty on the cross, he is my substitute, that when I believe in him, I'm credited with his righteousness, and on the basis of his righteousness, which I have by faith alone, I am declared righteous, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to work through this difficult passage, to understand how consistent it is with the rest of Scripture, to understand that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We trust that he is the Savior, the one who died for our sins. He is your Lamb who took away the sins of the world, and by trusting in him alone we have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening, anyone here that has never trusted in Christ, never clearly understood the gospel, always thought perhaps that somehow they contributed something to their salvation, that it is clear that we contribute nothing, we bring nothing. We simply accept what he has done for us. He is the one who brings and offers salvation to us as a free gift, and we trust in him and him alone and instantly we're given the gift of his righteousness when we believe. We're given the gift of his righteousness and eternal life, which can never be taken from us. And, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand that also, as believers, it's important for us to apply your word in every area, not just to learn it, not just to accumulate knowledge, but to apply that knowledge in every area of thought and life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.